0: Hi, everyone, I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass' Be Here Now Network. Uh, we are recording today the 25th of January 2021. We have just inaugurated the 46th President of the United States. Uh, we are in the middle of winter here in the Northeast. I'm situated on Nipmuc territory here in Massachusetts at the moment, uh, although I reside in Conarse land in uh, what is now commonly known as New York, in New York City, city in Brooklyn. I'm here because as many of you know, um, in Rerooted, we explore what is it that makes us rooted to the land, to the earth, tethered to that which is all my relations all around us, and that which separates us, that which is part of what we feel as though there is sort of a spiritual and existential separation often within us, and also what is often what creates conflicts out in the world, And the goal of some of these conversations is to try and see how did these come into being. Sometimes we use a mindfulness lens, a spiritual lens. Sometimes we use a historical lens. And that's kind of what I'd like to do today is uh, have a conversation with Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She grew up in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farmer and um, a mother who who worked, she's been active in the international indigenous movement for more than four decades and is known for her lifelong commitment to national and international social justice issues. Dr. Dunbar Ortiz is a historian, the author of several books, uh, and she is the editor of, let me see, seven books actually, Living in San Francisco, an indigenous people's history of the United States is the book that captured my attention, and it is the winner of the 2015 American Book Award. Dr. Dunbar-Ortiz, it's a pleasure to welcome you on the Rerooted podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Francesca, it's a pleasure.
0: Uh, Dr. Dunbar-Ortiz, one of the things that really amazes me about your work is you have had a lifelong commitment to uh, this work. You've written many books, you've done tons of research and uh, on a variety of subjects, and, and you have a, a particular interest around American, you know, history and, and, and what that means in all of its forms. And also in this book, really presenting some of the things that we don't learn about and delve into, at least in my public middle school, grade school, high school, uh, we did not, and even in college for that matter. And so I'd like to maybe start by asking you, what prompted you to to write this book and to study what you've studied and share what you've studied and shared with the world?
1: Yes, I think this book is um, in many ways a, a culmination of all the work I've done, you know, in the in the last uh, fifty years, the scholarly work and activist work. Um, I um, did my doctorate at uh, UCLA uh, in Los Angeles in and wrote my dissertation in 1974. Uh, but there was a big break there between my uh, being uh, promoted to. The final stage, writing my dissertation, and when I wrote it, because in 1968 <clears throat> I uh, I quit. I quit graduate school. I pretty well quit um, quit the society as it was, along with millions of other young people at the time, including a lot of graduate students. Uh, to be a full-time activist uh, against the war or civil rights and being in Los Angeles in California, uh, the farm workers movement, uh, unionization movement of uh, mostly Mexican workers and Filipino workers uh, and um, anti-racism. I was in a group that uh, was uh, worked to Raised consciousness about apartheid in South Africa with other with exiled um, South Africans. So I had this um, interest uh, when I first started graduate school. I wanted to do um, I wanted to do uh, Latin American history, uh, U.S. imperialism in Latin America. So I ended up, and so these were my studies, my exams, and and seminars, and so forth. But when I went back, um, given you know all this activism, um, and uh, I was invited back to do my dissertation, they didn't have to invite me back. But they, um, uh, the professors I had had at the time, said, "Why do we-? I was going to law school instead?" And I hadn't even really thought about going back, but I um, I realized they kind of needed me because. Uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act had just been passed and um, they had real problems with having no, very few women. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they were going to uh, lose federal money. Um, I, I think it wasn't entirely just generous, but it did give me bargaining power. And I said, uh, okay, but I want to choose my uh, topic. And I laid it out to them some work I was doing And one reason I was going to law school um, was the land question in New Mexico. Um, New Mexico and of course, California, the whole West, what we call the Southwest and West Texas and up to um, the Northwest and Colorado, Utah. This was all a part of Mexico until it was taken um, by the United States in a vicious, violent, Deadly war, two years um, that uh, uh, gave that the United States won, of course, um, and um, they took uh, the northern half of Mexico. So, the people, the indigenous people of New Mexico, the Pueblo Indians, which is what the Spanish call them, they have their own names. They were 100 city states along the Rio Grande River, the northern Rio Grande River and um, irrigation farmers, um, and they uh, were reduced by the Spanish, um, Spanish invasion uh, to 21, from 100 city states to 21. That was the level of genocide uh, within 30 years of, uh, of okay. the entry there. So I um, I have become very interested in the fact that the um, descendants of the Spanish colonizers who, when the United States took over, um, were colonized by the United States and lost their land hmm. and the Pueblos were losing their land. By then it was Mexico when it was taken and Mexico had um, ceased being imperialist there and had um provided the Pueblo Indians with with a legitimacy, their own land base and all. They had they had to fight for it, the Pueblos did, but they actually gained it. But the Spanish were, you know, the Mexican were in power. They had most of the land still but they they lost it. So they were um, in 1967. They launched a an armed rebellion and took over a whole town and held it and um, demanding land that they had lost back. But this is land that their ancestors had taken from the Pueblo Indians. So it was right. very complex.
0: Right. And
1: I wanted to. I I had sympathy for both. Um, groups uh in a way because most of these his they call themselves hispanos to this day were not rich people they were poor and they were had been deprived of of the land they had and uh they were uh, uh they were their language they were discriminated against because of their spanish language and so forth but um I so I decided to. That's what I wanted to look in. That's what I was doing. I was learning. I I mainly went to law school to learn property law Mm. and to understand all the
0: poverty or property,
1: property, property law. Understand land. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Well, without it, there's poverty. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's not that they're
0: not intertwined. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Right. Uh, So that's, uh, they accepted that. They were very enthusiastic about it, but it then did did become a U.S. thesis uh, rather than a Latin America because it was within U.S. boundaries. So that sort of annoyed me, but um, I did get my doctorate in U.S. history. Well, at that same time, that I was bargaining over that, I was at uh, University of Santa Clara Law School in um, Northern California um, and uh, there were there was a lawyer uh, who lived in in that area who practiced law, who had been, for instance, the lawyer for Angela uh, Davis mm-hmm. and uh, the great he civil was rights activist for people who the, don't know. Um, Yes, um, who was imprisoned, you know, falsely, and uh, was charged with murder. So it was a very serious thing, and she was on trial during that time. Um, and he had begun doing work with the uh, Lakota people, Pine Ridge, because they had risen up in 1973. It's called the Wounded Knee, um, the Wounded Knee uprising, um, where they were. Complaining about um, the tribal government uh, being very, very oppressive, and of course being under the Nixon administration, the um, American Indian movement had formed in 1968. It was very militant, and it was making demands on the federal government. And their own tribal government was um, was killing them; had killing squads, were killing people, and uh, Uh, and oppressing them and, and and having the FBI come and arrest them. Uh, So they, um, they rose up and they seized uh, the hamlet of Wounded Knee, which historically was very important. And a a book had just come out called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Yeah. So people, and it was a bestseller. And, um, and it also told about the Wounded Knee Massacre, of 1890, uh, so people in general in the United States uh, knew where that was, you know, and it was um, it went on for two and a half months. There was a lot of public sympathy with the um, young young people and and elders, very traditional elders, who were carrying it out, and the Nixon administration sent. Um, uh, sent uh, the Air Force, the Army, the Marines, the FBI, every um, imaginable um, armed group of the federal government to surround them, and um, they still held out amazingly. And um, but uh, when they negotiated to close down, and they promised, they had promised to drop charges. They broke all these charges, they broke all these promises and charged over 300 people with uh, crimes and misdemeanors. Mm. So this lawyer was doing work uh, with a notable Native American Lakota Dakota uh, lawyer, Vine Deloria Jr. um, to build up the uh, defense cases. And they came to my law school and they were trying to recruit you know, law students to help out. So I, you know, I was already doing this research on, um, for my dissertation. Sure. And um, uh, so, so they recruited me. And when they told me they wanted me to be an expert witness and um, on the Lakotas and the Sioux Treaty and all this, I said, well, I'm not the right person because I, you know, I, I specialize in the Southwest. I don't know anything. And Vine Deloria is very memorable to me. He uh, he had a stack of uh, a pile of documents and books and stuff on his desk. And he picked them all up in his arms and he gave them to me. He said, I'm sure you're a quick learner. <laughs> I love and that. And so I uh, matched. <laughs> I mastered uh, this, you know, so I could be an expert witness, but it it was not natural to me. I I felt very, um, um, you know, uh, like uh, there had to be other better experts than me, you know, but there were, there were three or four of us, um, and the others did know originally a lot more than I did about it, but I did learn, and I became very involved in, in the treaty, and that was actually my first published book, was um, I collected all the testimony from um, one of the main uh, legal uh, things that took place, which was a motion to dismiss all these cases. And uh, I compiled, and it was mostly the traditional elder people testifying often in, in Lakota in their own language and being translated. And this was in federal court in Lincoln. So my first book was The Great Sioux Nation, Sitting in Judgment on America. And um, in 1977, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of classic uh, book now. I basically, I edited all of the testimonies and there are also pictures of all the people testifying. and. Uh, then I, you know, I, and all the time that I was doing that, I was also writing my dissertation and I turned it in in 1974 and it became a book in 1980, A History of Land Tenure in New Mexico. So that's really how I, um, it, uh, it it hadn't occurred to me before I was recruited to do this work that I would make um Uh, Indigenous peoples uh, history, the basis of my studies of, of history of my academic and activist work, but that's how it came about.
0: Yeah. What a fascinating story. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's so beautiful to really look at your history and oftentimes your own personal history, because we look at answering the calling, answering, you know, a lot of people, I think a lot of young people and even, even me, um, you know, sort of, what am I here to do? You know, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Jack Kornfield, uh, mindfulness teacher and, and, and psychotherapist talks, uh, talks about his friend Maladoma Somme who's a, a shaman, who talks about you know your your job is to deliver your cargo, and so what is your what is your cargo to deliver in this in this world in this life in this planet while we're here, and um, and it sort of came to you in that stack of papers, and here's your here's your you know you're a quick learner, you know you can figure this out, and and I love that because <laughs> you know you sort of answer the call and 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 take to the challenge, and it's not easy, but you're dedicated, and in mindfulness language we use that. Um, Uh, sort of term called virya in in, in Buddhist terms, uh, which is effort and kind of discipline that we kind of stick with something and sort of see it through, because we're really seeking, in some ways, uh, a deeper awareness, Uh, you might want to call it some sense of enlightenment or liberation, but really, you might want to just call it truth or the nature of reality, and I think that all of your work, from a very specific, historically contextualized uh, place, uh, really, really does that, and gives us light, um, and and sheds light, and and gives us windows into all the things that we don't know, that we that we haven't paid attention to, or that. Um, people have literally tried to erase and disappear, uh, whether it's genocide, land theft, uh, residential schools, in terms of culture, cultural genocide also, and, 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 and the variety of ways in which indigenous folks here uh, in what's now called the United States, uh, have been tried to be erased. Uh, so I'm just wondering, um, from from where you sit today, I mean, there's so much that I could get into here from the wounded knee battle and, and what that means and what the significance of that is to the way in which... Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, is inextricably linked um, to, for example, uh, you know, the indigenous movement and, and Standing Rock and, and the Dakota Pipeline and even things of late that we've seen. Um, but I'm wondering if we could kind of start at the at the very basis of things, which is this this piece of subtler colonialism and what that was about and, and, and kind of what that meant and who was involved. Because I think a lot of people have a very sort of narrow view, and I know it's complicated, too much so probably for this recording, but that, you know, there were blacks and there were whites and there were indigenous people. And then, you know, whatever happened, happened. And, and, and now we have America. But I think you can shed a little bit more light on what is settler colonialism? How did that work? And why is that um, a policy that has lasting repercussions today?
1: Yes, that's a good question. I also like your. I think that that's very fitting the sense of a calling. I myself growing up in a a rural uh, growing up very poor in a rural uh, community in Oklahoma. Uh, My father tenant farmer and then driving a diesel truck um, to farmers. um, That Uh, My mother was a devout Southern Baptist um, and they also had, you know, the evangelical, what is your calling? And I took that very seriously. And of course, by the time I was uh, 17, I had uh, completely um, uh, gotten the Southern Baptist out of my life completely, including all Christian religion um but uh it stayed with me the sense of of uh of calling and yeah the settler colonialism is uh, uh, it's very tied up with um christian evangelicalism as well and um in some awful ways but i think it um it is you know it seems like a very abstract term but it's it's actually um historically quite precise what it is. Um, it was first practiced in um, by the British in Ireland. Um, uh, the British uh, uh, conquered and, and uh, colonized Ireland um, very early, uh, beginning in the 16th century. But then in the... Um, uh, a century later, they opened land. At first, they didn't take the land. Uh, they just uh, really made the uh, Irish peasants uh, into you know, workers in, in potato production, and, um, uh, which they, uh, the British exported around the world, um, sort of a rural proletariat. But in Northern Ireland, they created um, the Ulster, um, the Ulster entity, which they opened for, uh, they drove the Irish, uh, the indigenous Irish off the land and invited Scots uh, and Anglos to settle there. So they, um, some of them were poor, some of them were rich, some of them were barons, um, but they came to outpopulate the um, indigenous uh, Catholic Irish and, of course, oppress them in new ways uh, on a very personal basis—not just the, um, you know, the British military, which, which is bad enough, but just day-to-day life. And of course that situation still exists today. You know, Ulster, uh, Northern Ireland uh, um, uh, is still there to look at and study settler colonialism. Uh, But that um, practice uh, and those very settlers, the the Scots-Irish of which my my father's family, I'm descended on my father's side uh, from these these, uh, Scots-Irish settlers They actually were, uh, came from Ulster, from that experience uh, with the British to settle the colonies, um, particularly in the South, Um, and um, brought settler colonialism, you know, the practices with them. And uh, mainly it's a, you know, the settler colonialism is uh, people come to stay and to take the land and to uh, get rid of the inhabitants and take their land. It's uh, different from later immigrants who come to an already um, uh, organized polity and uh, they may come to stay, but they're somewhat contingent and not necessarily then you know, in the seat of power. Like a settler is, so you have um, white settler democracy actually developing that um, <clears throat> formed the United, what became the United States. So I think, and roughly, to, what time um, are we
0: talking about now? This is what what time frame.
1: Well, it started, you know, in sixteen oh seven with the um, with the Virginia colony. The uh, uh, driving out the settlers, driving out the uh, indigenous people. uh, First of all, you know, uh, leeching off them. Of them, they didn't bring enough supplies to sustain themselves. So they uh, uh, they took the Indians. uh, They did bring plenty of military uh, people with them, and they. They took the gardens. They took the farms. These were, you know, very intensive farmers, uh, subsistent farmers, and one of the products that they um, grew that was unique to to North America was tobacco, and they used it as a um, both as a sacrament and as a, and for ritual, uh, because they knew it was a powerful and harmful substance if it was, you know, treated, but. What, you know, they, because they had fields of, of tobacco, the settlers decided uh, that this was, well, first of all, they got addicted to it and realized, it, you know, it, I always say the United States started as the drug trade, you know, that they then found when they shipped that others got addicted to it in Europe and it became very popular and mm. um, it just sold like gold, you know, they came for gold and they found tobacco, they found drugs. Right. So that, um, that is not, you know, that that is a questionable beginning of, of what became the United States and has one of many. A, a, Oh, well, it has remained a kind of through point, you know, like drug trades everywhere they invade in the world, you know, they create uh, drug trades and drug, uh, drug addiction. But um, I wanted, you know, when, when they decided to um, split with Britain, this was really in 17, uh, 1750s. When uh, and 60s, when the British and the French uh, fought in a vicious war, in Europe uh, was it was called the Seven Years' War, and they also fought because the French had uh, fur trading territory. They weren't really doing settler colonialism. They they were mainly men, mainly fur traders although, you know, native people got caught up in it um, and were colonized in some ways, but it wasn't settler colonialism. They still had their villages. They still had, it just introduced, you know, a lot of trade items and dependency, Uh, but they had this huge war and and the British won. So they won all this French territory, uh, which was over the edge of the Appalachian, mountains that was all then British territory and the settlers by then there were there were um 13 colonies and um they all wanted uh, they had already been going over the line you know into the area that was forbidden um because it was French territory uh now it was British territory so they started pouring over and the British um did a proclamation that um, drew a line at the Appalachian and Allegheny Mountains, prohibiting any settlement. It was very densely populated with Native villages, and uh, they had, um, you know, after a century and a half, uh, learned very well how to how to fight. They had been pushed out. There, many of them were peoples who had been pushed out of the uh, of the Atlantic, you know, Atlantic shore c- colonies. And, and so they had they had built up a huge resistance to any further uh, inc- uh, uh, incursion on their on their territories. It's called the Northwest Territory. And of course that didn't refer to Washington and Oregon. It referred to Ohio, what's now Ohio, Kentucky, Illinois, Indiana, that whole area. So they um, they brought redcoats. Uh, they imposed uh, taxes and penalties for anyone going in there. Um, they uh, they required the um, colonists to um, uh, give boarding, you know, to allow soldiers, redcoats, to uh, to stay with them for housing. Uh, So you find all these things in the Declaration of Independence. You don't know what they're talking about exactly, you know, what they're referring to if you don't know the history. And almost no one ever bothers to know the the real history of the United States. Uh, But all those things are iterated, why they're, why they are declaring independence. And all of it is about that prohibition. That is why they split it had nothing to, their freedom they talked about was the freedom to kill Indians and take their land. And the British were colonists. They weren't protecting the Indians. They were protecting uh, their empire, which was, you know, they knew that they couldn't mount enough troops um, to um, conquer the Indians. Plus they, they uh, there was nothing in it for them, but for the settlers, they had already um, they had already uh, developed land um, land sales um, with illegitimate uh, um, you know real estate deals because they had gone in and mapped George Washington was the biggest and made his his great wealth off land speculation uh, before independence. By the time he was 22, he had made a fortune off going in and mapping. Uh, we always, you know, he's always portrayed as a surveyor. Well, he would take in, you know, the militia and map all these areas over the mountain range and then sell that land to landless settlers. And he didn't own it. So in order to, to you know, the, his great wealth was, was at risk if they didn't become independent because the British didn't recognize these land sales. Uh, So this was was the reason they split and um, they developed in the Northwest Ordinance uh, before the constitution that became a part of the constitution. And this Northwest Ordinance was a a way of measuring land uh, for land sales because land sales is a um really the united states was founded as a corporation as a you know capitalist state and land was the capital uh land sales was the capital yeah and and recruiting settlers to settle it
0: i just want to underscore that because i really feel as though it's important to kind of Emphasize and underscore that again, from a mindfulness perspective, we talk about the things that are what we call it the root of suffering, and one is greed, the other one is aversion, and the other one is ignorance, and that you know this idea of of sort of greed um, is sort of I think at the root of of sort of taking what's not yours and to excess and 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 sort of what you're talking about is is this was woven into the way in which the very seed that was planted here not what was pre-existing with 100 million uh, indigenous folks down to 10 million not what was here what would eru- what was arrived but what was turned into uh property what was otherwise an interdependent all my relations connectedness i'm a human being but there are birds there are fish there are trees there are these other things and we are all interrelated and interdependent on this land Um, That, that was turned into a commodity
1: yes that's that's right the um Many people uh, land was something that was alive. Uh, that was the land, the animals, the trees, all the resources were uh, living beings and relations. You know, when they say "all oh, my relations," they mean all the land, all the um, all the resources in the land, and all the animals. Um, and they know that they are. Uh, that human beings are, for survival, are dependent on each other, and they build um, many different kinds of societies, but they all have in common um, the this mutual mutuality and a respect for for the land. And um, I found with the Pueblo Indians when I was researching um, that it seemed a great mystery to others that had studied it, uh, why they moved from the huge civilization they had built, the Mesa Verde that was, had, you know, irrigation works that were 22 Mm -hmm. feet in diameter, that were waterproof, was a a huge civilization. And um, they explain it in their oral tradition that, all of this took wood you know it took everything was built from the wood wood and rocks but um, that they had denuded uh, the wood they had um, used up the resources so they learned from that they moved to the Rio Grande Valley transferred and they they um, downsized to smaller city states smaller irrigation and, you know, a different kind of life because they had no capital investment in it. You know, it was hurting them. It was hurting human beings, what they had done. And they learned from that and changed it. Um, the other thing that, you know, the Spanish just found abhorrent is when, um, I mean, the, the, the Americas were not disease-free as people say, you know, they, they, they make that claim in order to say that uh, the they were not there was no immunity, and you know, and just dropped dead of disease. They only dropped dead of disease when they were in crowded refugee camps and starving. Uh, you know, when a invasion. Uh, these were almost all um, any any kind of starving uh, and dying of disease was related to uh, war being made upon them. But they um, they built these, uh, most people have seen pictures of Taos Pueblo and Acoma and these, um, <clears throat> these really substantial um, multi-story buildings um, that if they had, you know, before the Europeans came, they had, um, uh, they had a, something similar to bubonic plague because that is very um, uh, common with irrigation societies uh, to, have, um, to have that, you know, that virus. And uh, when one person would come down with a the plague, they would burn their entire village, burn it to the ground. They would quarantine that person and they would move and build a whole new city. That's what, you know, wow. with this pandemic, this is the kind of thing we, you know, uh, we need to think in those those terms for survival uh, because they knew it spread, you know? I mean, right. it was very obvious that they had probably had experiences before that, you know, where it did spread And maybe even at Mesa Verde they had had some kind of catastrophe like that. So these are things that capitalism won't allow, you know, allow uh, human centered uh, survival as as the number one priority. And that is its absolutely worst deadly aspect. But let me read you a um, excerpt from uh, a book on, the Northwest Ordinance um, and settler colonialism, how capitalistic and totally rationalized settler colonialism was as as a something to implement. So in the Northwest Ordinance, Its importance was equal to that of the constitution. Uh, It's uh, little known, but it's actually the basis of the constitution. It didn't deal with ethereal concepts of pursuit of happiness, but instead declared in practical terms, how the land from the Appalachian Mountains up to the Mississippi River was to be conquered. And this was done by surveys, surveyors' chains, each 22 yards in length. The measuring began at an arbitrary point in the Ohio Territory, and invisible lines were drawn on the land to form a grid of perfect rectangles marked by iron bars and the occasional brass plate cemented onto a masonry base. Each of the rectangles had its own map reference. And as the U.S. imperium expanded, the grid eventually reached the Pacific coast and stretched between Mexico and British North America. The lines on the land not only conquered natural topography, but also made possible the liberation of parcels of land from their previous occupants and their efficient allocation of newcomers. So this was very thought out, you know, and they paid no attention to rivers or mountains or trees or anything else in developing these saleable plots of land that could be made into pieces of paper uh, that could be sold and became the basis of the stock market as well.
0: Yeah, wow. That is such an incredible history and thank you so much for sharing that. Because I think that, you know, settler colonialism has been likened to chattel slavery, which is of course um the system uh that the transatlantic slave trade uh you know, perpetuated and 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 has the policies, the legacy of the policies uh that were legalized and 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 uh and enforced for 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 years. Uh, you know, we're 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 dealing with the inheritance of all of that also. And as a therapist, of uh, as a somatic psychotherapist, my my sort of interest is not only dealing with the individual, but also in the cultural trauma and the intergenerational and the historical trauma that lives not only in bodies but in our land. And we see global climate change, I see as the the big culturally you know earth mother somatic disruption also which you know the stewards of the land uh homo sapiens as we as we might be uh have have not maybe really kept our contract in pursuit of of what you're talking about this wealth accumulation wealth in a way that there's only so much extraction one can do uh before uh it you know things are depleted as we're seeing with uh, certain you know natural fossil fuels and things like that um, I want to maybe touch on a couple of other things. We have about fifteen or twenty minutes left here. Um, you mentioned that there were different, there were different, there are different points, and I, I don't know which ones you want to talk about. But you mentioned the evangelical thing a little bit earlier, and and Christianity, and the doctrine of discovery, and uh, sort of the 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 going way back to the fourteen hundreds. Uh, really sort of set the stage for some of what this go forth and conquer and, uh, you know, you're entitled to sort of take and accumulate, uh, sort of set the stage for that, whether it was uh, enslavement or whether it was land uh, theft or or whatnot, and, and and, and from that, uh, and the accumulation of wealth for some uh, at, the, at the expense of, of others, uh, there were some movements made to have multiracial or multiethnic, it really wasn't even race, I don't think at the time, multiethnic or diverse coalitions, like you say, the Green Corn Rebellion, multiethnic resistance, that there were times when people came together and were sort of united in oppression around wealth and poverty and, and discrimination and not around race or ethnicity. It was more of a class, uh, coalitions and that, and that sort of this idea of race and, 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 and genocide was used to to keep that from from gaining ground. And and I guess I'm I'm just a little bit curious, uh, you you mentioned Wounded Knee, and of course there are whole narratives uh, around American culture that have been spun up from John Wayne and the Lone Ranger and Tonto and all of these things, and even Mount Rushmore where we look at uh, about what America is and 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 what it isn't. And, and here you are having written this incredible book, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. That's who we're talking with today. What do you think is the most important things for us to, to know now, in terms of where we are in 2021, given the politics that we are living through given the climate crisis given the racial pandemic the covid pandemic and all of that what can people learn now from what they don't know that you could share the nuggets that you know
1: yeah um well i think um you brought up um of course, uh, the parallel of uh, chattel slavery and uh, settler colonialism, they're, they're completely interrelated. And I think on, on one level, you know, Native people see the land as, as a body, as if it's, you know, a, um, a body just as the human body is. Right. That it can be injured, it can be hurt, it can die Um, uh, uh, unnaturally or die naturally, some die naturally, Um, but the slave body, what gets left out too often of um, chattel slavery, um, I mean, everyone knows about the auction block and, and sales, but I think they don't really understand that profoundly what it means to turn human body into collateral in in into a commodity to be bought and sold on the stock market native people saw land and then i think africans in africa before you know they they were slaves also see land as um uh as 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 a body you know as a living thing they can't be bought and sold right Uh, but you think of the human body being uh, a commodity, not simply a factor of labor. That's bad enough, you know, exploited labor and often indentured servitude or um, trafficking people for labor. You know, migrant workers and all is called slavery, and it shouldn't be because slavery should be reserved for chattel slavery, um, that it is the body that is a collateral and like the land. So there's that parallel and the removal of the stewards of that land in the South that became the cotton kingdom and the basis of U.S. capitalism. that in in which they bred African bodies in Virginia, they no longer did the international slave trade legally. They bred uh, bodies to be transported to work in that land that had been taken and defiled by a a monocrop cotton. And um, this this uh, injury, you know, it is you, you mentioned intergenerational trauma. It's tied up um, in in so many ways. Uh, of course, for every um, succeeding uh, person, you know, and um, uh, uh, a former of of, of uh, enslaved peoples, and also of, of native peoples. But also of the settlers, yes. As the having uh, the need to come to, I think there's this desire. I saw it with the protests. You know, the Black Lives Matter. I think even Black Lives Matter were somewhat taken aback and 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 surprised by the overwhelming um, response of. People in places like Oklahoma, where I come from, that you know, go out and protest, um, least of all against racism, and um, in Idaho and Wyoming, and you know, all these places that people do not want that poison inside themselves. They don't want that toxin, but they don't know how to get rid of it. You know, they they. It, it is constantly encouraged, like you say, to keep people apart and to uh, weaken any, anything we can bring forward. Um, it's going to have to be millions and millions and millions of people from you know, all, all peoples and so going to have to include the white population um, acting in a, you know, not guilt-stricken, I did feel that in the response that was coming last summer that it wasn't just the same old guilt-stricken thing, you know, liberals being guilt-stricken. I think that's better than nothing, frankly. I think (laughs) being guilt-stricken isn't horrible because there's a lot of guilt to be had there. I mean, but it's not very productive, you know, as sustaining. it it, it it doesn't necessarily lead to, it can be paralyzing rather than leading to action. I agree. But I think people were getting it. And a lot of that has, I mean, some people, have you know, kind of fallen off of that, but I think a very substantial number of people moved forward in that sense. And I think it's even tied to the January 6th um, invasion of the capital, that these white nationalists really got spooked by all that, you know, that uh, they're going to lose their, you know, that they must have had a sense of, um, well, during the thing, they were constantly uh, harassing and even killing um, the protesters. These white nationalists were but they must be freaking out. You know, This is, things are going to change in a way that will not, that uh, white settlers are trained to be. Yeah, I think, you know, what you're
0: pointing to, I think is just the reality around our inheritance. And I think that, you know, a lot of the folks who've been on this podcast before have talked about the different things around uh, the invention of whiteness and how it's very, very specifically, you know, a creation and a construct that's used to divide versus unite and and the reasons why um, you know it's sort of taken hold is it's sort of this idea of access to power or proximate you know proximate opportunity even if not real opportunity uh and i guess you know sort of you know in the last i'm sorry uh, i
1: disagreed yes i agree you, you
0: disagree no, I agree with you. <laughs> oh, you agree? Okay, okay, okay. I want to make sure we're on the same page. And so, just in, in in maybe the last five minutes or so, you know, I think there's so much that we could that we could say, and we've said a lot. Um, I really do encourage people to read the book or to listen to it uh, if it's on audio tape. The um, Indigenous People's History of the United States with uh, Dr. Uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz to really get a sense of what the inheritance is and to not get caught in what I call a shame spiral as you say, guilt, but to use it as an opportunity for compassionate connection, and that the sense of moral injury that we may have, that sort of like this existential cloud around us um, that, that some of us may feel could be used as the Dalai Lama might say, a force for good, moving toward uh, compassionate action of, of connection. And I'm wondering what you think people can do today, if anything. Um, would you encourage people to study, to learn, Learn. Would you encourage them to sort of look inside and do more of an internal investigation around their own relationship with land? Would you encourage them to uh, maybe learn more about Indigenous communities that may be uh, near uh, and and sort of find out what their needs are? What What do you feel is a good place for anyone listening to this podcast to begin if they were interested in waking up more to uh, what a true uh, Ally, if you would be uh, to an Indigenous person in the United States now, might be what would that look like?
1: Well, kind of all of the above, but um, I do think, uh, as a historian, I do think that um, that people need to. I think they know it, kind of under, you know, unconsciously. But it has to be brought to consciousness and acknowledged um, that the US is a, is a colonial state and to, to drop all of the. Um, um, I wonder one wonderful piece uh, in the New York Review Books or somewhere about the July 6th and, and, and how. How people have to come to terms, uh, all the things I would say, you know, they had to come to terms with history and who we are. You know, people are saying, this isn't who we are. This was arguing, well, yes, it is who we are, and we have to face that. But Mm -hmm. then it says, if we are to fulfill, it ends with, if we are to fulfill the vision and the work of the founders. We have to learn these things. And I said, they're the ones that inscribed it. The founders are the very people, the slave owners and Indian killers, who set the whole thing up and inscribed it in our brains. And it's repeated and worshiped and made holy uh, every day. And, you know, every politician, everything that comes out of their mouth. So this is, you know, my heart fell, fell because I thought, what kind of, you know, what kind of um, warped thinking would lead a person, an intelligent person to make that important argument about history and then say the founding fathers were perfect. You yeah. know, we, that's a cult. That is a cult. We live in a cult the cult of the constitution, that's what I call one of the Mm. chapters, you know, and go into that and it goes back to the, you know, the Puritans and the Magna Carta and the, that culty thing we have and it reproduces cults, the QAnon, the, uh, you know, cult after cult after cult. So we have to deprogram our cultish, connection to the Constitution and to um, the so-called founders, you know, who designed this horrible system that we have propagated. Uh, So I thank you, Francesca.
0: Yes, I was just going to say, I thank you, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Uh, You can find it at uh, book shop and your local bookstores. And um, I just really want to express my sincere gratitude for your decades uh, of scholarship and activism and and your presence here today on the Rerooted Podcast.
1: And by the way, I'm sitting here on uh, Ohlone Nation land, unseated.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. And
1: reawakening their civilization. Yes. Thank you, Frances.
0: Thank you, Dr. Dunbar-Ortiz. Take good care.